Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. Let us listen now for the word of the Lord. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives, on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, And do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. This is the word of the Lord. So we've been journeying for quite a while now, along with the Israelites, through the Exodus. And last week, we finally got to that beautifully climactic moment where God gave to the Israelites the gift of the law and the covenant. And in doing so, we remarked that God gave them a new identity. This group of former slaves, they've been wandering around in the wilderness for three months now at that time. They They were overwhelmed by anxiety at every turn, questioning from where they would get food, how they would find water out in this barren place. 
constantly wondering if God had brought them out there only to let them die of hunger and thirst. And in the midst of their fear and anxiety, God not only continually provided for them, but continued to remind them along the way that they belonged to God, not to Pharaoh. That they were now God's people. They had a new identity. They were given a new sense of purpose, a new dignity that they did not have before. The law and the covenant were for them this palpable reminder of God's presence and provision. So faithfulness to the law then became a way of of enacting and embodying God's grace, remembering God's promises. And their life together would be markedly different. They would be unique. They would be a people set apart. No longer on Pharaoh's time. No longer do they mark their time according to Pharaoh's calendar. And once a week, they would stop. They would rest. They would be renewed and restored. They would be a kingdom of priests, holy and set apart the hands and feet of God in a world shattered by sin. It was this beautiful picture of God's care for God's people and the profound responsibility that comes along with being called the people of God. But now, we skip ahead a little bit, and Moses has been up on that mountain for quite some time. He, they don't know when he's coming back. All their anxiety and their fear comes flooding back. What we see here, I think, is that their identity has become so wrapped up in this one person, Moses, their leader, that when he's up on the mountain for 40 days with no word from him, they start to lose it. And we can see this because throughout the book of Exodus, one of the constant refrains that we hear over and over is that God is the one who brought the people out of Egypt. God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, over and over again. And even during their flight, you might remember, as they're, as they're leaving Egypt and they approach the sea, as they're crossing the Red Sea, they see that the waters have been parted. Moses has his hands up. And the people notice, they say, God is parting the Red Sea. Not Moses. They recognize that it is God who is doing it. It is God who is behind it. They know that it is the power of God that brought the plagues down on Egypt to put to shame the false gods of Pharaoh. They know that it is God who allowed the angel to pass over their homes and brought the devastation upon the people of Egypt and who baptized them in the waters of the Exodus, giving birth to the people of God. They know all this. Yet, at this moment, when Moses is absent, nowhere to be found, no sign of him, no word from him, their fear and anxiety overwhelms them to the point that they incorrectly identify Moses as the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. You see, we we tend to think of the golden calf moment that we'll get to in a minute as, as the act of idolatry committed by the people. But this misidentification of Moses as the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt is just as, if not more, egregious. Moses didn't bring the people out of Egypt. God did. And they know this. But for them, Moses was their direct connection to Yahweh. When they were hungry, they went to Moses, who talked to God, who provided manna and quail. When they were thirsty and thought they would die of thirst, they went to Moses, 
who talked to God, who told Moses to strike the rock, and then water gushed forth. Time and time again, when they were in need, they went to Moses, who gave them access to God. So they had come to depend on Moses for that. And now he's missing, and they have no clue when he'll be back. So as tensions mount, and as their fear grows, perhaps they feel their connection to God slipping away. They feel their future that they thought they had been promised is beginning to dissipate. The people need something tangible. They need something to hold on to. They, you know, how will we know which way to go? How will we know what to do if Moses isn't here? Hebrews 11 talks about how faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. This is their struggle, to continue to have faith even though their sight is severely lacking. So in the absence of Moses, their one tangible connection to God, they panic, and you can understand why. Even Aaron, Moses' own brother, who has been with Moses on this entire journey from the very beginning, he seems to possibly get kind of wrapped up in their frenzy. When they come to him asking to make gods for them, he immediately obliges and says, sure, grab all, grab all the gold, bring it all together, we'll, we'll get this thing going. So he, he melts it all down and forms it into the shape of a calf. And Aaron, perhaps feeling the pressure to lead the people in his brother's absence, does, helps the people in this, uh, in this senseless act. Because unlike Moses, in this time of trouble, he has no word from God. He has no powerful vision to offer, no provision, no way forward. To him, God seems silent. Now, we also tend to miss what it is that the people are actually doing in this story. Usually we talk about the golden calf as uh, this whole new God that the people have created. We speak of their idolatry in the sense that they have abandoned Yahweh, who brought them out of Egypt, and have now created some strange new god in the shape of a calf. But that's not quite the case here, because once the calf has been uh, created, once it's been made, the people respond as one. They say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Does that sound familiar? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So two things to notice here. First, there's this strange, things that hap this strange thing that happens when they say, these are the gods, plural, when there's clearly only one calf. Because one of the Hebrew words for God is Elohim, which is probably a familiar word. And it's actually a plural noun. So it literally means gods, even though it's used to refer to the one God. So for instance, in Deuteronomy 6.4, which is the Shema, this kind of central confession of Israelites, of, of, of Judaism, says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So it's saying, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Elohim, the Lord is one. So even though it's a plural word, saying one God. And so again, in the story of the golden calf, when the people declare, these are, these are our gods, they use this word. It's a, different, it's a different form of Elohim, but it's still Elohim. And it's a form that is often used throughout the Hebrew Bible to refer to God. So in other words, the translation that we have is a little bit misleading. They're not actually claiming to have made new gods. They're claiming that this golden calf that now stands before them is the one true God. 
that this golden calf is in some way the, the physical manifestation of Yahweh, of Elohim, the God of Israel. A very clear and blatant transgression of the, of the second commandment. It's also made clear in how they speak of their new idol. They don't talk about how this God will now provide for them in the future. They don't talk about how this God will lead them out of the wilderness into the land of promise or suggest that they have been abandoned by Yahweh and that's why they're, they're taking on this new God who will care for them. They say, this is the God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Making it clear that to us, this is God. This is Elohim. Just as they previously misidentified Moses as the one who brought them out of Egypt, they now falsely identify this calf as the one who liberated them because, to them, God is in this calf. To them, this is God. Now, perhaps it's just because it's kind of this time of year and we're you know, seeing this recent barrage of political ads on TV, but it strikes me how, how often we do these, the exact same thing that the Israelites are doing particularly when it comes to how we talk and think about politics. Just as they did with Moses, we so often misidentify leaders as the representatives of God. Now, there's some that we look back on and say, you know, he was really the one who brought us out of Egypt. Life was good when, when he was in charge. And then we look forward to others and convince ourselves, you know, if we would just elect this person or that person, then we'd be on the right track, because that's God's candidate right there. We have so many golden calves. We baptize political parties and cast them as the image of God, as the physical manifestation of God's will on this earth. When, when the world around us seems to be falling apart and descending deeper and deeper into chaos, our fears and anxieties begin to rise, just like the Israelites. And we begin to believe this lie that this party or that party or this candidate or that platform, that's what will sustain us and lead us out of the wilderness and lead us into the land of promise. And it is a lie. But it's a powerful lie that we return to over and over and over. Like the Israelites, we have these festivals to these false gods of political power. We dance around them and make sacrifices to them, all in the name of the one true God. I think this story should cause us to seriously reevaluate how we think and talk about politics if we want to be the people who claim to be the people, the, the people of the one true God. <laughs> let, me, let me say that again. <laughs> this story ought to cause us to seriously reevaluate how we think and talk about politics if we also want to claim to be the people of God. But thankfully, this story should also remind us that even though we constantly turn away from God, even though we constantly create these false idols and call them the one true God, God ultimately refuses to turn away from us. That even though we constantly cast these idols and falsely attribute God's presence to candidates and parties and whatever else, and even though, as we see in this story, there are probably times when God wants to give up on us, wash his hands of us, and, and move on. God never does. 
this account is a microcosm of one of the great themes that I think we see all throughout Scripture. It's a testimony of God's faithfulness in spite of our unfaithfulness. A salient reminder of God's steadfast love even when we constantly heap our praise and devotion elsewhere on things upon which it should not belong. So may we, like the Israelites eventually, learn to direct our devotion where it does belong and have the courage to see and expose the golden calves that we continue to cast, to mold, and to serve. Amen.